Thank you, grown-ups, for your um, patience with having worksheets handed out, and it will be a slightly different talk this morning. Thank you, kids, for your patience as well. Um, your groups will start again in a couple of weeks. Let me pray for us as we begin. Do keep your passage open in 2 John. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who loves to speak to us. Thank you that you speak to us supremely in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that we have your word about him here in our hands this morning. And so we pray that whoever we are, however old we are, wherever we come from, whatever is our first language, we pray that you would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, when it really comes down to it, when push comes to shove, in normal life, where do you go for joy? Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, you know what the answer ought to be. But where do you really go for joy? And I think that you think you know what I'm going to say here. Because if we look for joy in the wrong places, we will never have true joy. And that is true. Lasting joy is elusive, isn't it? So you look for it in your job. And there will be good moments. And maybe you will climb the ladder. But it won't really be a joy that ever truly lasts. It's not the joy you were made for. Or you look for it in your grades at school or university. And, and maybe your Thursday GCSE results just come out, have brought some happiness and some relief. They have in our house. But the joy doesn't last because there are A-levels just around the corner. <laughs> or you look for it in a person. And there will be good moments with particular people. Maybe a spouse, maybe a friend, maybe children, whatever it might be. And yet, those people will always let you down. And lasting joy will be elusive. Or you look for it in things, and you want the next thing, the best thing. And those things are meant to be enjoyed, but they will never really bring you lasting joy. And if you are a regular at Magdalen Road, you will know what I'm going to say. That, that it's only really in Jesus that true joy can be found. Only he has the kind of broad shoulders that, that we need. So that he can handle our needs. Only in him do we find the relationship that we were made for. He is the one who can satisfy us. So have a think about um, Isaiah 55, for example, on the screen there. The prophet Isaiah says, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, says the Lord, and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Isaiah is using the language of our appetites to, to show that only he can really satisfy, that only the Lord can truly satisfy. We listen diligently to him and we, we are satisfied. And yet here's the thing for the grown-ups to have a chew on this week. Sometimes I wonder if our pursuit of joy, even joy in Christ, can be elusive because it can become a self-centered exercise. When our focus is us and our joy then it doesn't work. Have a listen to this from Tim Chester. And as a staff team, we've read this book this last term. Can you read that? If you squint, you guys at the front might be able to. Let me read it to you. He says this. He says, Pursuing my joy in Christ can be self-defeating if it's a selfish, self-centered exercise in self-fulfillment. Then joy will elude you, even joy in Christ. But if we pursue one another's joy, then our joy is made complete and our love for God is made complete. 
So if you want to have joy, stop looking for joy and instead start working for the joy of other people. The strange thing is you'll never really be happy while you're pursuing your own happiness. Now I think that first paragraph is key and there's a key word, if. If it's a selfish, self-centred exercise in self-fulfilment. But it's striking, isn't it, that in the Bible again and again and again, the joy of one person is tied up with the joy of somebody else. God made us for one another. And that seems to be what's going on at the start of 2 John. I don't know if you spotted it as we read it. You get it actually at either end of the letter. Have a look at verse 4. We're on page 1229. And in verse 12. Do you see what John says? It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth. Or verse 12, the penultimate verse I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. Do you see? John's joy comes from knowing that God's people are doing well. And why is he particularly joyful? Well, have a zoom in on verse 7 with me in the middle there. See if you can spot what's happening in this church. John is joyful because, do you see verse 7, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. So, you see, these imposters have come into the churches and John says they are dodgy. They are getting Jesus wrong. And it's probably that they are saying Jesus is not fully man. And you see, the danger is that this deceit and deception from them can lead to disqualification for the Christian. When you get Jesus wrong, you lose everything, says John. And so that's why John is writing the letter. That is why he is so joyful, because he realizes there are people who are still trusting Jesus. It's worth saying at the beginning as well that it is, in fact, a letter to a church I don't know if you wondered when um, Ping read for us in verse 1. It it could be, couldn't it, a a correspondence between um, someone called the elder and a a lady, the lady chosen by God. He said in verse 1 there, it could be a personal letter to a particular family, perhaps. But actually, I'm convinced this is a letter to a local church. Often in the Bible, the church is referred to as a woman. Maybe think in Ephesians, as Paul is writing in chapter 5, he describes the bride of Christ, or the end of his first letter, Peter, is speaking to the church in Rome and says, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And see, this is a letter to a church. The chosen lady and her children aren't a a mum and her kids, but rather a beautiful description of a local church and her members. You get it in verse 13 as well, do you see at the end? Um, The children of your sister who is chosen by God, send their greetings. Who's that? It's another church, a sister church, who send their love and their greetings. Well, it's just for a moment, we need to pull over and notice that, that often the local church is spoken of in the Bible as a family. The most common and widely used term, it seems to me, of a local church is family. So we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are sons and daughters in the faith. We're adopted children of our Father in heaven, whom we pray to. Jesus is our elder brother. We're family. 
So there's a, a non-negotiable love between us, a commitment that's expected. And I see that at Magdalen Rose, that kind of love. It's extraordinary. It's costly. I see people swoop in and help in situations above and beyond when there are needs. No big song and dance, no trumpet call, just a quiet meal is provided, a lift is given. It's a costly commitment. It's a privilege when I say to somebody, hey, I hear things aren't so good. Can we as a church help at all? And they say, oh, don't worry, actually, there's already a WhatsApp group set up and I'm covered for three weeks. It's extraordinary. That is not a natural thing, friends. That is God at work among us. Maybe some of us haven't had great families. Well, know that the family of the church is meant to be the kind of family that we dream of, that we long for, that we were made for. There ought not be any lonely Christians or isolated Christians. If you're a regular here at Maldon Road and you feel lonely or isolated, please come and talk to me afterwards. I'd love to help you with that. You see, we are family. And because he's called us into a family that is characterised by love, well, so we see John is encouraged. Oh, sorry, jump on. The first of two threads, there are two threads that seem to weave through the letter that bring John joy. And the first of one, kids, I'm on the back sheet here if you're taking notes, you've got the outline for the talk. You see, we're a family characterised by love. Have a look, for example, at verse 1 and verse 3. To her children whom I love in the truth. Verse 1. Or verse 3. will be with us in truth and love. You see verse 1. John loves this church in the truth. He's not arm's length. He, he loves this church. Or verse 3. He's, he's confident that God will be with his children in truth and love. We're to be a family characterised by love. Now, it's the summer holidays, and I suspect you families might feel the pinch of that idea. We're supposed to be loving, but maybe the parents are dreaming of school. Maybe it feels a little bit like far from reality. Maybe, kids, you know how to wind up your siblings. Kids, maybe you know exactly which button to press to wind up your brother or sister or your parents. Thank you very much. And of course, our families are imperfect, aren't they? But remember again, (laughs) this is what a family is supposed to be like. Families are to be places of love. Got giggles on the front row from my son. (laughs) Love is to be at the heart of church life. And that's not to have surprised them. Have a look at verse 5. They shouldn't be surprised by this idea that love is to be at the heart of church life. Verse 5. And now, dear lady... Again, I'm not writing to you a new command, but one that we've had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. Now, I'm going to suggest we just press pause at this point. Um, We're going to get into twos or threes for about 30 seconds. And I want you to tell me where this command to love comes from. It comes from Jesus. I'll give you a hint. So tell me where it comes from and why it matters so much. And if you need a clue... Okay.
okay? Shall I gather us together and put you out of your misery, some of you? Or does anybody want to help us? Where, where do you think John is thinking about when he talks about a command to love? Let's start with the younger generation and see whether they can kick us off first. Anybody got any ideas? Awkward silences, that's fine. We're going to go slightly older. Any teens? Twenties? <laughs> I'm sure the greats know. I'm sure they're just being shy. <laughs> they're hiding. Anybody? Anybody for me? Come on. John? Excellent. John 15, there's John 13 as well, which is the one I've gone for, actually. A new command, I give you love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. See, the big question for us, though, is what do we mean by love? What's our definition of love that we're working from? Christian love is often frequently misunderstood. It does not mean having warm and fuzzy feelings about someone. It does not mean as you queue up for coffee after the service, or kids, as you zip to the front as you do, it does not mean turning to the person next to you with a grin to say, I love you. That would be awkward. Now, from the Bible, it seems to me Christian love is about two things. It's about feelings. I don't think that is there, but it's about action as well. It's about doing something. Jesus was, seems to be washing yucky feet when he was talking to them. Love is an action. And yet, listen to this, though. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says, 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 3, If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship but do not have love, I gain nothing. So what does that mean? It means that love is more than just an action. There's something at the heart of it, too. And so what is the love that John is getting at here? What kind of love does he see among this church? Do you see it there? This is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. Now does that sound particularly loving, walking in obedience to the Lord's commands? What kind of commands is John getting at? Well, I wonder whether he's talking about what Christians sometimes call the one another's. Now, you probably can't see that again. But right through the Bible, you get these commands from the Lord as to how we are to treat one another. Let me give you some examples. Because we love one another, we are to be those who teach one another, Colossians 3. Or we are to be those who carry one another's burdens, Galatians 6. Or to forgive one another, Ephesians 4. That's quite hard, isn't it, if you're a brother or a sister. Or to encourage one another, 1 Thessalonians 5. Or to offer hospitality to one another, 1 Peter 4. Or to pray for one another, James chapter 5. And so I wonder if John sees that this church are obeying these kinds of commands... Because they're living for Jesus, and so they are loving one another. You see, this resilient church, in the midst of danger, in the midst of these deceivers who will come in, we'll look at them in a second, John sees that they are standing firm, and so that brings him joy. 
So that's the first thing. That's the first reason that John is joyful, that he sees they are a family characterised by love. And yet, the reason that they love well, I think is because they are a family built upon truth. Have a look down at verse 9 to 11. Um, the second column, about a quarter of the way down, page 1229. Let me read those verses for us again. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. Now there are some really important words in those verses. Verses 9 to 11. The first one I think is really important is the word teaching. How many times can you spot the word teaching in those three verses? Verse 9, verse 10 and verse 11. How many times can you spot it? Three. Thank you. Yeah, I think there's three. You see, when John was writing to this church, there was no television. There were no internet. There were no smartphones. And so if you wanted to spread a message, then you'd have to go yourself. Which means there'd be all kinds of travelling teachers going around the place, journeying from town to town, and they had a particular word or a particular idea or a particular truth or a philosophy that they would be taking with them. They would tell you that they had the truth and that their truth was definitely the truth. Now we get the same kind of thing in our day. All kinds of voices and messages for people to listen to, to understand. We get them in books and TV and the internet. And... But actually, actually, not all ideas are good ideas. Not all truth is good truth. It turns out that some are quite dangerous and destructive. That building just over there with the mural on out that window there. A number of years ago, people used to use something called asbestos to help buildings keep warm. It turns out that was a really bad idea because it turns out that asbestos can make you quite poorly if you have too much contact with it. They thought it was a good idea. Actually, it was a really bad idea. And as we found out, it's quite costly to remove it. You see, some ideas, some truths are not good as we found in the building over there. Have a look at verse 9 again. You see something of the damage that this bad teaching causes. Do you see, and does not continue in the teaching of Christ, does not have God, or again, whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. What do you lose? What do you lose if you don't keep the right teaching about Jesus? says John. He says, you, you do not have God. You lose both, both the Father and the Son. Isn't that an interesting way of speaking about being a follower of Jesus, of being a Christian? There are all kinds of things we gain from when we become Christians. He brings us into a new family, a church family. We have the joy of knowing that we are forgiven, that we are loved, that we have a future with God forever. And they are all good things. But it's striking that John says the, thing, the key thing you lose is God. 
You see, the most important thing is we get him. We get God. He is our friend forever because we've trusted Jesus. All that he has is given to us. We are the most blessed people in all the world because we have God. And so John says, if you stop trusting him, if you stop trusting him, then you lose him. In fact, you lose the father and the son, verse 9. And so the final word to spot in those verses there is the word continue. Can you get it a couple of times? John's writing and warning them that they need to continue and to keep trusting Jesus, to keep trusting John's teaching of Jesus. Imagine with me you are cycling along by the, by the, beside the Thames, either into town or out from town. And on your way, suddenly you get one of those rowing instructors on their bikes. You know the ones? They come charging towards you. And they're not looking where they're cycling because they're looking out at the, the, the river. How do you cycle like that? So there we go. And they're looking out at the crew and they're shouting instructions to the rowing crew. They're trying to get them in time, in unison. They're getting them pulling at the same, all that kind of stuff. They're not looking at you, which means that you end up in the water soaking wet with your bike and you're not a great swimmer and so someone throws you a life ring from here and you put it over your head and you're holding on and you start to feel a bit tired and so what do you do you're treading water it's been five minutes there are people trying to it's not working what do you do do you take it off do you try something else no, you continue to hold on tight, don't you? You continue to hold on tight. Well, so John says to these Christians, continue to trust Jesus. Keep believing the message about Jesus. It's what's keeping you alive. And the so-called truths that these teachers are coming and teaching you, it will make you sink. And actually, verse 10 to 11, even welcome these teachers into your house. Don't have them around your table for a meal. Don't show them hospitality. Isn't that striking? Don't hang out with these people, John says. Because their ideas are that dangerous. I guess the question that we need to ask, or you ought to be asking at this point, is, well, how do you know that what I'm saying is true? How do you know that I am teaching what is true? Whether you're a grown-up in the service here, whether you're kids who are normally out in your groups. I think the answer is this. I think it's keep your Bible open. Whoever is teaching you, Listen to what God says and check out what he says against what they are saying. John sees these false teachers coming in and he wants to correct this church to check that they are safe, to keep them trusting Jesus. Well, so that applies to us because you need to check what I say against the scriptures, against what is true and what God has revealed of himself. The danger is... People like to water down what God says sometimes, to make him fit in with what we want him to be like, or to make him fit in with what our world wants him to be like. 
But we need to listen to what God says and to trust him and for who he really is. And so, friends, keep your Bible open. And I think those two things are the things that are bringing joy for John. He writes to this church, this precious church, this family, and he sees that they are a family characterised by love. Love is at the heart of what they do. They are walking in obedience with the commands to love one another. And they are a family built on truth, and he longs that they would continue to remain built on truth. So my challenge for you is afterwards, have a chat, perhaps as you're in the queue for the coffee, rather than looking across adoringly at the person next to you. Why don't you ask them, what might John say about us as a church? How are we doing with these things? How are we doing well with God's help? Where are we a family characterised by love? And where are we a family built upon truth? And where might those things be challenged? Where can we grow? How can God help us to grow in those things? Let me pray for us. And then I'll hand over to Catherine, who will lead us in some more prayer. Lord, we thank you for the joy that John found in seeing these believers standing strong. Thank you that he saw they were a church that loved each other. Thank you that he saw they were a church built upon truth. And thank you that that brought him great joy. We pray that you might help us to find more joy as we see others thriving. And we pray that we might be a church increasingly characterised by love and increasingly built upon truth. Guard and protect us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.